Welcome to Nota Bene, brought to you by Seesaw, the only app you need to get you to see the art you want to see. And Ben, it's a free app. You can download it in the App Store. It's amazing. I've been using it for years. I go on Seesaw, flag the galleries that I want to see, and it shows up in a custom-made map. What else does it do, Ben? Uh, I mean, that's basically it. You go online, say, say you're traveling somewhere, say you're just in New York. It shows you all the relevant galleries, what the shows are, when they're open until, meaning like when like the show's done, you click on the ones you actually care about and want to see, leave all the crap aside, and then it'll build you a custom map so you can walk around, you don't miss any shows, and then like gallery owners don't get mad at you because you didn't see the last four shows because now you're able to see it, all because of Seesaw, available for free in the App Store. Gallery owners are still going to get mad at me, but that's okay. They just get mad because I don't buy. Nate, back from Mexico in one piece. How was it? It was just amazing. I cannot tell you the extent to which you missed one of the greatest weeks of, of my young life. We're going to get into it. I The FOMO, it, wasn't, it never got too bad. It got a little bad watching you guys on the gram. It looks like you were having fun. Um, we just had recorded an amazing interview with Locke Kressler uh, going through all of the upcoming auction lots. That. So stay tuned for that. But, uh, but tell me, so what was a highlight of Mexico? It was just an incredibly... A rich week full of just amazing, amazing art, amazing just, you know, experiences, stuff that I just haven't seen in over a year and a half because, you know, we've been stuck in in New York. Uh, And just to be in another country for the first time since February 2020 was exhilarating enough and this is just the best you know i mean i one one thing like on the art tip that i really wish i'd seen is the uh the presentation that gianni jetzer did in uh in one of the barragon houses and i've been in that house it has the coolest indoor pool in the world it really does and he curated um what was it robert janitz yeah Uh, yeah, and robert robert was there i hung out with him a lot he showed me this this amazing house i didn't see gianni actually who's an old friend and wonderful guy, but uh, they did amazing things together. This house was one of the three Barragon houses I saw over the span of a single day. Um, Just an abundance of riches, Uh, plus the food was just unbelievable. I mean, did you eat anywhere but Contramar? Because I got like six (laughs) messages, oh, we're Contramar for lunch, which I love, but I mean, the city is full of great food. Uh, I did skew toward the higher end more than the lower end. Of course, I did... um, you know, have a bunch of tacos at some random shops and things. But yes, I did eat a Contramar five times. Wow, that's incredible. That, uh, yeah, as I said, FOMO. It looked fun. I just wasn't quite ready to get on the horse. And I mm-hmm. ended up doing, and it's like the art world is coming back on Saturday. Uh, something I did because I didn't go to Mexico is a relatively new client wanted to walk around, see some pictures in galleries. We mm-hmm. went to the auction previews together. My social calendar is like anxiety inducingly full coming up for the next two weeks with the auctions oh, and God. freeze me too it feels like it's like maybe not back to normal but it's happening again oh like, it, I, yeah like well, after after these two weeks i'm gonna need another year of fucking isolation this is <laughs> yeah maybe just a, maybe just a week or two uh, yeah i'm not ready uh but it, it certainly feels like the art world is back and i know we've been kind of saying this the last few weeks but just this last week in mexico you know there were there were dinners at collectors houses there was uh you know these you know, parties at speakeasies. There were, you know, these artist lofts that were taken over by collectives and, you know, these DJs spinning. And it was just like very, very thoroughly um, pre-pandemic feeling. And um, granted, you know, I think the people who who were self-selecting and coming were people who have been vaccinated. Um, there was a lot of testing going on. Um, it, it was safe. I know that... that, that I mean, isn't everyone vaccinated now? I mean, you can yeah. walk in, you can get the shot. If yeah. you haven't, you're a weirdo. <laughs> um, I, but but more than that, it's just you I'm, know. Ki- I'm kidding. That's your personal choice. Of course, personal I, choice. I I recommend it right. highly because 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 being close in restaurants and and uh, and and leaning into your friend's ear and telling a secret is something you can't do without the vaccine. If you can't do that, what's the point of life? Exactly. Um, and yeah, I, I had the unique experience of, you know. Winning a lot of money on the Kentucky Derby while at Contramar, which oh my I goodness. highly recommend. You, you, were they broadcasting the Kentucky Derby into Contramar, or did you have to like, watch it on your phone? We watched it on our phone, but it didn't matter because we fucking won. And you I, know what I happened? I heard we won because someone had a premonition. I did. I, I had a dream then. What happened was uh, I woke up on Saturday morning, Saturday, Derby Day, to a text message from friend of the pod, Mills Moran. Uh, who was also in Mexico because he opened a gallery, as we discussed on previous iterations of Nota Bene. And uh, he asked me if there was any horse that I liked. And 
in this sort of like, you know, just woke up fogginess, I remember this dream that I had about about the Islamic traditions. And I don't really remember any details, but when I looked at the list of horses, I said, Medina Spirit, that's our horse. I had a dream. We're going with Medina Spirit. And he's like, it's a 12 to 1. Like, this 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 pony's not going to win the derby. And I said, that's our horse. That's our horse. And so uh, me being the poor guy that I am put less money than I should have on the horse. How much? Uh, <laughs> I put 50 bucks. Oh, wow, that's, yeah. a, that's, a, that's um, a sensible bet. And, uh, and ba- based, on a, based on a random dream, that, feels, <laughs> that doesn't feel overly conservative to me. Yeah. And um, so, and Mills put more money than Significantly that. Significantly more. Um, and... Uh, we were sitting at the, at the table of Contra you know, you, you get there at 2 p.m., and you generally sit for three to four hours. We were definitely in the long haul that day. So we were eating, we were drinking for over the course of hours, and then the derby was, was rapidly approaching at 6 p.m., or I guess 5.57 um, Mexico City. And you guys time. actually remembered that it was happening. We did. That's, okay, a, we did. <laughs> that's an accomplishment but, in its own right. So uh, I want to paint a picture here. At this point in the uh, evening, it is still very much lunchtime. People are still eating lunch well into 7, 8 o'clock uh, on Saturday at Contrema. Oh, love and it. So every table is is full outside. It is just like the, the, the tout le monde of, of Mexico City's art scene and society here. It's at its best restaurant. You know, this is an impossible table to get. Shout out Mills for getting the table. Um, and we turn on the derby, and right out the gate, Medina Spirit is in the lead. And we're like looking at each other like, oh my God, could this actually happen? And then, you know, just like, you know, the whole way, like Soup and Sandwich was approaching, a few other ponies were approaching, but Medina Spirit was leading. And then on that final leg, it was like pandemonium at the table. We were like, oh my God. And then... When 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 the horse you know crossed the finish line at Churchill Downs, it was just madness from there on out. The table, like the whole the whole, the whole evening unspooled from that oh, moment, was, perhaps like fantastic. everything everything went into Technicolor. Mm. I think what it means is that we actually and and I have a little bit of connection here. I think we probably have to head down for the Derby next year, uh, depending yes. on what else is going on in the art world. I think that have to be might have to be a non art trip we take. It was actually my intention to go down. In May 2020, I had an assignment from my friend who's the editor of a uh, great little magazine called The Believe. Uh, uh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, The Baffler. Uh, and, not The Believer. No, not The Believer. <laughs> and he gave me an open assignment to write about the Derby. Um, and the idea was he, the editor, was going to tag along, along with my close friend Michael H. Miller, who's a writer for an editor for T magazine. And we were going to sort of redo the Hunter Thompson, uh, yeah, uh, of course, prefer display. Of, Isn't this of the fantasy Hinduism. every like white male young journalist I know, has? I know, but then someone gave it to an editor gave me the assignment. So like, of course I, I was going to take it. I'm not it. I'm just saying. Um, and, and I had, uh, I also had some connections through their wonderful, the wonderful, uh, contemporary art museum in Louisville, the speed museum, um, that I was going to, uh, thoroughly utilize in order to, uh, get some good seats. Well, at I think we need to make it a junket next year. Maybe mm-hmm. we can get some some corporate sponsorship. You know, yes. hopefully fly in a non commercial kind of kind of manner. I, I, I would think, love uh, to fly you in, know, a, in a PJ. Ladies, down to ladies and gentlemen's Louisville. trip. I think it's a, I think it's important. It's important for us. It's to do it's that. important. Yeah. It's culturally necessary. Speaking of important, um, and also speaking, you know, it's so unfashionable to stand for a billionaire these days. Um, you know. Like super unfashionable, but I was a little bit Are we annoyed. Called out for this, yeah, and I'm okay with that because I'm actually I'm super annoyed. Eli Broad passed away last week, uh, who was uh, a in lion all, in, in in all in in every regard an absolute lion uh, philanthropically. I mean, his art mm-hmm. collection is like maybe overweighted towards masterpieces. That's the biggest. That's that's the biggest <laughs> knocking. You're like, oh, it's too many trophies. Too many trophies. <laughs> like, like, come Oops. on. Um, you know, you know, it was a uh, was a back, uh, bedrock of, of redeveloping downtown Los Angeles, uh, and and you know, it was a big supporter. And it, it, I went, I. I I dormed in a, in a broad hall in college at Pitzer, mm-hmm. um, you know, just an absolute Titan, totally self-made and, uh, you know, great, great, uh, obituaries in the times, both Los Angeles and New York, but a lot of like lefty artists bite in like, Oh, he's just another billionaire. And blah, 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 blah. There was a, there's a whole, uh, Clubhouse that uh, of LA artists that denigrated into talking oh shit and, and applauding talking shit about that is about the Lebron. last thing I'd ever want to here's the to. thing: uh, political, you can be a, you know he was he was very pro charter schools, and I can understand how someone would find that problematic and find in general just the the accumulation of massive amounts of capital by one person problematic. Nonetheless, if you're talking shit about him, 
as an art collector and as a Columbus, you kind of hate art. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't want, I don't want to hear from you. You're, like, you're, you're not, you're not capable of being part of the dialogue. I mean, the the Broad is truly one of the great private museums in the country. I, I, I don't think there's any other way to slice it. I was, I was really luckily, lucky enough. Uh, I was working for someone uh, with someone who worked very closely with the Dela Cruz family when that mm-hmm. museum opened, and I traveled to Los Angeles because it was, you know, all the galleries, you know, almost like an art fair. Did a bunch of, you know, associated events around the opening of the Broad, and uh, and uh, one of the Dela Cruz is like, "Oh, Benjamin, you're you're not coming to dinner." I was like, "Oh no, I wasn't invited." That's for you guys. Just come, just come. We wow. bring you in with us. Wow! Uh, I had to go rent a tuxedo because I did not bring a tuxedo with me, um, and uh, and got to go to this. Inc- I mean, one of the greatest kind of you know art. You know, everyone was there. Like great, the opening of the museum, walking through it for the first time, being one of the first you know, know three hundred, four hundred people to go through an incredible gala dinner, um, and just really celebrating him and a pretty remarkable life. I mean, his his dad owned like a small drugstore in the Midwest somewhere, and and then to become the height of a captain of industry and and really you know one of the key drivers of Los Angeles in the in the last 25 to 50 years really um Eli I salute you I raise a drink to you absolutely and uh and if you're against that fuck you we raised our mezcal glasses when we heard the news um all right I think that is uh uh, there's so much more to talk about we're gonna have a huge week with the art fair like I said I'm already like buying things yelling at dealers getting yelled at by dealers and clients Mm -hmm. um it's going to be Fun. a crazy week. I'm going to, we need some downtime. We'll we'll recap all that next week. But I think now we should uh, we should uh, we have a great conversation. As I said, with Locke Kressler, Let's he's talk super options. smart. Like he knows where every picture is, who's consigning it. He gave us some of that knowledge, uh, although it was discreet, of course. So stay tuned after this for a really in depth, kind of fascinating look at some of the auctions coming up here in stay New York. Stay tuned. Locke Kressler, what is going on, buddy? Dialing hey, in from London. Not too much. It's a bank holiday here, so that's uh, right. Had the day off, which is quite nice, and uh, just doing a little bit of work from my uh, office at home. Do you usually work on Mondays? Do you go into the gallery? Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm. I'm used to sort of the Monday to Friday uh, kind of routine. Even when I was uh, in previous employment, it was the same there. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's like having a real job for Christ's sakes. My goodness, I um, know it's it's a strange feeling. So. But you were just you were just re- you're just recently back to back to the UK, right? You guys got kind of got stuck in uh, stuck in the US. Yeah, you can't hear my air quotes, uh, but <laughs> yeah, we uh, we went over to Florida uh, where my in laws have a house uh, just for Christmas. It's meant to be, you know, a couple of weeks off. And then uh, we saw that the school system was closing down here and everything was really going into lockdown. So we thought uh, Florida might be a better option for us for what was supposed to be an extra couple of weeks and just kept extending out more and more and more. But How um, long was it in the end? How, how many months were you stateside? It is the longest I've been stateside in 13 years. And we were there for four months. Well, that's not, that's a nice little third of the year. That's not so bad. Usually, you come back in the summer as well for a little bit. Exactly. No, it was it was a nice it was a nice experience uh, working UK hours and getting up at five in the morning every morning was a little bit challenging. But uh, having sunshine in the winter is uh, a very it's it was an anomaly for me in the UK. So it was great to kind of you know have that. And, it's good to keep the, the the kids a little bit American as they have two American parents though mm-hmm. expats both. I keep, Honestly, after four months, their accents get so kind of muted. And then the second they get back here and go back into school, it's like straight, full on kind of British accent. So asking for the loo and not the bathroom and that sort of thing. Um, Exactly. But you guys did, you kind of ended it up after you were in Florida based on on stalking you on social media and your your (laughs) wife, Quincy. Looks like you just had a kind of epic little art focused road trip across the American West. It was um, it was interesting because Florida was great because it just it was the perfect kind of hub to be at just given the um, the exodus from New York to Palm Beach and to Miami and so we were able to do a lot of work there and then at the kind of end once it started to uh, turn to the UK's uh, half term which is a four month spring break. Um, we thought we should do something different. My wife, uh, who works for the fine art group, was in the midst of closing a big project. And we thought, you know what? We've always talked about doing the Great American Road Trip. And we rented a 32-foot RV in Dallas, Texas, and then drove uh, for something like three weeks all the way to LA. And <clears throat> it was quite an adventure. And I think it was interesting kind of seeing the US state to state 
where certain things were open, certain things weren't. Um, I have to say the, the one that was the most closed down was Marfa, Texas. That was that was a surprise to me. Yeah, they've been taking it very serious down there, it seemed like. Because there's no hospital like with, with, with ICU beds. I, I spoke to a friend who lives down there most of the time. They, they were quite angry when Chris Wall flew in on his private jet from New York, if I recall. Yeah, I think you, you did some reporting on that. Or, yeah. So you stopped Hearing in Marfa. About that. You... <laughs> You yeah, st- we sort of, you know, it's, I'd say one of the best places we uh, was surprised from an art perspective was San Antonio. I had never been to the McNay Museum before, and I was actually doing research the month before on a uh, 1901 uh, Picasso and came across a picture that they had in their collection. And we, we went down there with kind of um, not really knowing the extent of it. It was great. I mean, it was, you know, they've got kind of this original building with uh, this sort of based on the original collection um, with other works kind of added in and um, and scattered throughout. And then you've got the sort of contemporary sides. They had a big Kusama room and uh, it was it was great. Yeah, really, really exciting. And then kind of traveling all over. I mean, it was it was a lot of art, but also a lot of like hiking up in Kanab and our three and six year old um, mm-hmm. definitely roughed it quite a bit um i mean it's so cool talk about topography that's different than anything in europe like the american west is is the the real america well it's also like when you're driving anywhere in the uk it's always like a one-way road meant to be two-way traffic and so you just like you get back out in the u.s and you sort of forget it's open road and when you're in like the middle of nowhere texas or new mexico it's just kind of like you know, you're on these stretches with no other cars. I mean, it was it was incredible. incredible. I mean, you definitely have some experience in road trips and slightly smaller, faster types of automobiles, uh, cruising around yeah. the world in supercars uh, now and then. How different was it driving a thirty-something foot boat of a car? Like, can you parallel park that thing? <laughs> I mean, the good thing is, is that I'd already done a three thousand mile road trip with my wife, and we drove. We did uh, started in London and ended in Tokyo. Uh, it was a bit of a crazy one. So we knew we could kind of handle being in the same car together. I would say the positives were, you know, driving at 65 miles an hour was a bit of a, uh, an exhaustion, but, um, the fact that there's a bathroom inside of your automobile is, is a lifesaver with a three-year-old. So, um, uh, but no, it was great. Well, all right. Well, we'll get down to the meat of it then. Um, we're having Lock on, who's a, a good friend of ours. We we tend to meet up for, for crabs in different spots in the world around Lots art fairs. Lots of crabs. But Lock was, I, I first became aware of you. I'm not sure about your early history, but when you were the head of uh, private sales at Christie's, uh, I don't think we really were friends then, but I knew of you. Uh, and then subsequently you went to Levy Gorvey and uh, were there for a number of years and opened up their space in London and have since moved on. And you're, we were trying to think of someone, we want to talk about the auctions that are coming up. We wanted to do it with someone that was both extraordinarily knowledgeable about various markets and had a really great sense of humor and was someone we could handle talking to for 40 minutes or so. And it was a short list and there was only one name and Lock Just Wrestler, you. you were that name. So we wanted to, uh, to, to bring you on to talk a little bit just about the auction world in general um, because there have been some shakeups. Obviously last week it was announced that Amy Capalazzo, the head of the fine art department at Sotheby's uh, and, and formerly a rainmaker at Christie's, is moving on to pastures unknown. Um, totally unknown. Yeah. Um, find her fortune wherever. And, uh, and it's just, it's, it's kind of that caps off a whole little bit of, of instability in terms of the personnel at auction houses, especially Sotheby's, but even Phillips, their, um, their, their longtime CEO, Ed Dolman. I mean, he's been there for almost 10 years. Uh, I worked under him, is moving to a chairmanship position. And they're getting a new CEO in there, uh, a former Christie's kind of more business side guy. So there's a lot of things going on. Like, what did you, were you surprised to hear that Amy was moving on from Sotheby's? You know, I think it's a very, it's an interesting dynamic in the auction houses these days. When I first joined Christie's, uh, I was there for 10 years and coming in just to get my foot in the door as an assistant in the Trust States and Appraisals Department. And then fortunate enough to get a job as a junior specialist in New York um, in the post-foreign contemporary art department. It was interesting because you just didn't see very much movement, you know, my my boss at the time, Andy Massett, had been there for 20 years or so. And uh, it just felt like everyone had kind of been there and wasn't moving around. And now it's just been such a sort of um, uh, a revolving door in terms of, you know, sort of same, same players, but different spaces. And, you know, in terms of Amy leaving, I think it wasn't a huge surprise. I feel like she had kind of done what she was brought in to do. Um, 
I, I feel like, you know, anyone who has a big salary at any auction house right now is being very heavily scrutinized. And, you know, they're really looking at this as, a, as, a, as an opportunity to kind of cull as much high, high level um, costs as possible. And it's a shame. I mean, I think there's been, you know, quite a, quite a brain drain in terms of uh, experience and knowledge over the years um, at all the houses, but it's, um, it's definitely been interesting seeing the sort of pieces moving around and sort of shifting back and forth. Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, I think um, Patrick, the, uh, the, the, the new relatively new owner of Sotheby's kind of has a theory that you don't need those big expensive rainmakers to make the auction house go that especially with the internet, everyone can see what is available out there in the world and they can really reach into buyers and even some sellers via, via channels. They don't need these, these people like, like an Amy out there who is able to just, you know, have these great long relationships with collectors that span many, many years. I think that might be a thesis that is incorrect. And right. I think that a lot of these people, especially large estates, they want, they want to trust their legacy and their pocketbook to someone they've had a very long and deep relationship with. And I wonder if this is a bet that might be, that might pay off in the short term in terms of, in terms of their expense ratio and their profitability, but in the 10 to 20 year time horizon, I wonder if it will pay off uh, or, or if they'll, they'll run into challenges down the line. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a huge loss for Sotheby's. Uh, I worked with Amy for about seven or eight years, you know, and she's got incredible established relationships and it's not as if someone can easily just step right into those shoes. Um, and having worked at an auction house like Christie's for 10 years, you saw a lot of shakeups and you saw a lot of people change and, you know, you get a client list and they're like, okay, you know, here's Scandinavia for you go meet all of these collectors and it's sort of retraining and restarting that relationship. And you're always behind the eight ball because there is someone like you at another auction house who's already had those relationships and it can be, you know, a detriment. I think every person who has come into an auction house in a senior level that's coming from outside the art world and outside the auction world in particular, always thinks that you can reinvent something like you know, a Christie's or a Sotheby's into something more contemporary, bringing everything online. And you forget that, you know, you still have to catalog it. You still have to ship it to the location. You still have to have actual knowledge and, and eyes on these pictures. And, you know, it's tough. I don't, I don't like buying works that, um, that I haven't, you know, seen in person. Uh, it's tough for me. And I, you know, this is my job, let alone somebody who's, uh, you know, sort of uh, new at the world um, in terms of art or someone who's more established and doesn't necessarily use their iPhone for making massive choices. So, yeah, I mean, spending $10 million on a picture that you've only seen as a JPEG on your phone screen, um, no matter how sophisticated you are, is really tough. And more and, and more to the point, value, valuing what the estimate on something, on a piece of property like that should be without really feeling the aura of the picture. I mean, I'm a bit of romantic about this, but I think it's it's kind of impossible. I think you try and start shaving the edges and start you know thinking this is just a consumer luxury business. It's not. People have an emotional attachment at these price points to certain sorts of things that, that doesn't translate in the way that people buy even the highest end bags and, and cars even right and now as we're sort of coming out of this you know period when we're going to be traveling more people are vaccinated i i think that that someone like amy you know would have really really made a huge difference at sotheby's in this new vaccinated era when people can see work in person and um i think that maybe patrick is still in this sort of pandemic mindset I don't know. Does that mean we'll see. I mean, I think she also, I don't think it is solely about, uh, from what I understand, uh, solely about just, you know, them being, being, done. I think, you know, also the, the constant grind of being even a low level auction personnel, but it's certainly a high level of the constant hunt for consignments, hunt for new mm-hmm. property, <sighs> constant sales. I mean, it just, it's a real, the, the highs are really high and the adrenaline's amazing, but it's a grind no matter right. how driven you are. It's so I'm sure it's a lifestyle grind. choice as well. I I ran the day sales for about five or six years. And the day the auction was over, you came into the office and just opened that binder back up. And we're like, all right, let's do this again. Start from Um, zero. And I always thought London would be an easier one to work out of. But then at the time, it was uh, our deadlines were always over August and over Christmas. So it was like doing uh, deals on the chairlifts. It was just not not, not the way to to enjoy yourself. So. All right, well, we'll leave that there. I think there's um, a lot still to unpack, but I wanted to get in because the sales are kind of interesting this season. Um, Sotheby's and Christie's are doing sales in New York, and they were, 
I would say more successful at getting decent property than I would have anticipated six I, or eight I agree. months ago. There's some incredible I mean, stuff. There's some incredible stuff. I mean, it's you know they're thin. Yeah. They're, they're not real. They're not real broad, but the, the highlights are really high. Um, and they're, you know, it's also kind of not confusing, but a new world where they've kind of split up the sales in a different way, especially uh, Christie's, which is kind of segmenting it by century a little bit. So they're doing their 20th century sale um, and then a 21st century sale. Um, which would create some interesting, in, uh, interesting combos, and then Sotheby's has kept it more traditional with its in a separate in mod and then post war and contemporary, um, and just kind of diving into the evening sales here. I mean, my big takeaway is that yeah, there, there were a couple of highlights. And I'm focused more on the contemporary stuff, but nothing that was that bananas. I mean, I think the 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 Basquiat is is the big lot on the con- post war and contemporary side for me. Um, there's some decent in-mod stuff. Did anything just kind of, you know, 30,000-foot view stand out to you when you were looking through the sales, Locke? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for sure the Basquiat is going to be the big kind of focus for that that week. Um, you know, it's an incredible painting, but it was interesting when the painting that Mayazawa bought came up and you put it next to Eli Broads, And it always felt like kind of the kid's sister picture to that one. And then when you see the three of them together in that photograph, this one kind of feels like the kid sister to Mayazawa's. And again, it's a half the price at 50 million, but it's still, it's that kind of, is someone going to take it to that extreme? I mean, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it is a stonking picture. Um, I mean, it's a great, you know, it kinda, it's, it's red. It's got the face. I mean, I stood in front of it on, I guess, Saturday morning. I was like, oh, this is great. But I think you're right. Even really? separated from those two other pictures. It doesn't feel like a hundred plus. It feels no. like fifty plus, maybe a little bit. Um, and I think yeah. that's around where the guarantee is—is is somewhere around fifty on it. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know. The, I mean, the cool thing about this is it was—it was bought from Larry Gagosian in uh, what year was this? Uh, in two thousand and two. Um, it was bought by Larry at auction for in two thousand and two for like just under a million dollars. Um, nine nine. Five hundred, nine 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 five hundred, and then Giancarlo yeah. Giacometti, uh, who's uh, the Valentino co-founder, of course, bought it from Larry a couple years later, so he paid you know double that, let's say, um, and now we're seeing an estimate around fifty million dollars. I mean, it's, it's, I'd say it's definitely better than the picture, the Warrior picture uh, of of AVs that just sold in Hong Kong um, for what was that like forty and change, forty mm-hmm. almost forty two million, um, but definitely feels somewhat. I'm just wondering if enough people were able okay. to come and did they travel this picture to to, to Asia, Nate, do you know? I think it was a late consignment from yeah, I what I gathered. Uh, I don't know if, I don't think they were able to travel it. I think it, it's it's a shame because I think the market that they're going to probably be focusing on is Asia because it's a real trophy piece. Um, there's obviously quite a number of American collectors who's, who are out there for something like this. You know, it was interesting. I wanted to put it into context. Um, and in 2002, when it came up, I thought this must have been quite a high price for that you know, that, that picture. And it was actually the ninth highest price at the time when it sold. And the world record had just been set in May, this sold in November uh, at $5.5 million when Lars Ulrich sold his profit one. So the idea you just sort of, it's, it's interesting that it was, you know, less than a, you know, uh, like a fifth of the price. And you, if you kind of try and put that into to the overall context, it was, it's, it's interesting that, you know, it, uh, I, I find it's a great picture. I just don't know if it's the most sophisticated top level one that's out there. Yeah, I think it lacks a little sophistication. I mm-hmm. think I would think that just the coloration would would be a, a great picture for a trophy hunter in Asia, like all that red. I mean, red, it really yeah. reads as like super bloody red, and that's like eighty percent of the of the picture plane when you're standing in front of it. Um, and the the face is great, but it, it's uh, the 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 background almost kind of takes over. Um, so that's, I think, will be the highlight of the season overall. But then just kind of backing up to to the sale that it's in, um, the Christie's 21st Century sale, and this is more in my wheelhouse, just kind of looking through the first couple odds. I wasn't surprised, but it made sense given his uh, his big piece on the roof of the Metropolitan Museum, which is like is going to be the most photographed piece of contemporary art this year, or maybe into next, because it's just so photogenic. And I'm talking obviously about Alex de Corta. They've put mm-hmm. one of his neon um, window pieces that were mostly sold through uh, through Karma. Karma a few yeah. years ago as Lot One, which is always traditionally a kind of a, a younger artist or a, a less a less usually in the market artist. He's never been in an evening sale. His auction record is something like sixty thousand dollars that was just sent fairly recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we were buying these. I think these cost me like 40 before discount uh, a couple yeah. of years ago when they were sold. 
the really cool piece is I've, Alex is someone I've bought uh, for a number of clients and, and been very involved with, but we've bought because we really love the work. We, we thought this was like a 20-year plan that he would have some sort of market traction, not something that would be our turnaround. I'm interested. Really, 20 years? What? You thought it'd be... T- yeah? 10 to 20 years. Uh-huh. I mean, it seemed like the, the kind of long, you know, he's a really ambitious project. Obviously, I think he kind of first hit, kind of began to really hit a lot of kind of... Um, uh, kind of hiring collectors' minds in Venice a couple of years ago, and right. I did a big project there that was quite iconic that we helped to to place in the in the Dallas the, the DMA there. Um, I don't. Know, I'm interested to see what this makes. I to me, it's like worth 150 thousand dollars when I look at it, but I wonder if there are market forces that will take it a bit higher than that. I mean, um, just seeing what the contemporary things in Hong Kong did. I mean, obviously, this isn't sort of figurative painting, but you know, the kind of traction things are getting just for hot names this is going to be one of those i could see taking it yeah 100 percent. but just it's the fact that it's not a painting it's and not not a, painting, not a representative yeah. painting by right. a person of color like, <clears throat> right you know i wonder if it, it hits the yeah. same things I, mean, I hope it does like i said i'm very involved in the market and i think he's a key artist of our generation i just uh yeah i was i'm happily surprised to see them trying to hit that um other thing that, that took note is uh the first the first jonas wood at scale in a few seasons that have able to get for auction um and it's unguaranteed, as far as my notes say, uh, unless something changed in the past yeah. a cu- the- couple hours. <laughs> um, and what's uh, the yeah, estimate on that? Uh, estimate is like two and a half, two to, to three, four, two to two four, four, which okay. is about where these are trading at. It's about a three million dollar picture, but they've been went from someone that I felt might be overexposed, both at auction and private sale, to a, someone you couldn't hunt down a really prime example of his work in the past six to 12 months or so. So I think there could be, uh, you know, I kind of was wondering if his market was really slowing down, but it feels like um, it actually could be continuing to be uh, relatively hot. And uh, yeah, really uh, a nice picture. I don't, I don't think there'll be any fireworks. I'm not sure if there'll be much chasing, but I think towards the, the top of the estimate. I um, mean, they put it lot five, so they've got to be expecting something to happen. You know, those first mm-hmm. five lots are very important just to get the, the mood going. Of course. And, you know, they must expect it's going to do something decent. And it's, listen, it's a nice, very commercial picture. It's got scale to it, as you said. And, you know, it hasn't been up before. I think, you know, it should have some action. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I'm inclined to totally. agree. Um, and it was smart of the seller to, to sell it uh, free and clear without any guarantees. The picture that is Jonas's record picture is like a $5 million picture of Japanese garden, mm-hmm. which is not really the most typical for him. This is much more what people in the past have been looking for. Yeah. Um, but I think that was, that was a couple of years ago. It was in 2019. That was it a was, pre-pandemic price. Yeah. That was the sale that benefited um, the rainforest, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, that Haley Mellon put together. Yep, um, I was there for that. It was actually an election. It was the last lot in the sale, and and people went bonkers for it. It was really exciting. Yeah, I mean, that was, yeah, that was really at the, that was really at the height of when when um, right. kind of like, you know it just come off his first museum show, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, again, someone I'm very involved with, so I'm, I'm happy to see it. But it was they really have been hard to find on the secondary market pictures at scale that are kind of a a, a b pictures. Um, the other thing that stood out for me just because like I love it. I don't I don't I've very little knowledge of the market for Kippenberg. I mean, I do, but especially for a Kippenberger sculpture. Um, and it stood out the estimate to me at uh, 10 to $15 for this. Uh, I can't even pronounce the name but this great Martin Kippenberger sculpture uh, that like shows super well in the space. This guy looking into the corner would definitely be a record for a sculpture by Kippenberger, but right. well off what, what, mm-hmm. what a high painting would, uh, would trade for. I mean, that's as iconic as it gets in terms of Kippenberger. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's just truly, uh, a trophy that I mean I yeah I would give a limb to have that <laughs> and I and I know who they're targeting with this picture and it's like that you can put that estimate on there because I know that's something that they need in the collection mm-hmm. and it's like you know it one's in Momo one's in Glenstone yeah. I think mm-hmm. Darrow's has one so you know there's there's six variations but mm-hmm. they're all very very unique um, and it's just so so classically yeah so classic but and such a great for a true connoisseur i mean this isn't you know this yeah. uh, you know it's yeah. a trophy of a different type I but know. i think people will stretch for it and yeah. you know i remember seeing it at, right uh, at glenstone a few years ago and um mitch and emily had put it right near that that david hammonds they have um how you like me now with um you know what i'm talking about uh-huh. mm-hmm. yep. and it was amazing uh that just the installation is incredible and also, I, lo- I love anytime seeing a, a, a painting or, a, or an object that's been in the same owner's hands for, you know, 30, you know, going on 35 years now. Oh, yeah. well, it's just like, you know, bravo, well done, and hopefully it's, uh, it's paying off for you. 
uh, Max Hetzler strikes again. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I had to bring this up just because it's a market that's troubled and in flux. There's a lot of talk about him. I think he's about to officially announce a change of galleries. This Urs Fisher thing sculpture that was premiered in this kind of off space that Larry Gagosian right, did on a Park show with Avenue. him. Uh, yeah, yeah. Kind of Mid Park Avenue. It's a, it, I remember loving the sculpture then, but it feeling expensive. That's a market that has so been overpriced, which has limited the amount of participants that 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 kind of take place in it. Uh, I still think he happens to be a great artist. It looked great in the view. They gave it a lot of real estate. It's also kind of interesting because obviously uh, Mr. Pino, the owner of the auction house, is one of the, you know, is one of the five or ten people that are very involved in Urza's market left. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm interested to see how it does. It, fe- I, it both looks like something that if I had the money and what was as into Urz as I am, I would absolutely have to have, but also feels very expensive given the, the instability in his market over the past five years, probably. Right. I also feel like it's something, if you were involved in the market and it was something you had to have, you could have bought it at the time. Yeah, it was offered to you <laughs> in, in the past. Yeah. This, exactly. And I think this, this piece, you know, this isn't something you stick in your living room. It's for someone who has, you know, a private museum or, has a space to be able to to, to incorporate this. Uh, when it was shown at Gagosian, I mean, it was the whole mm-hmm. room. Yep. Yeah, you know, this isn't a, I, I a wonder, minor minor object to add. Yeah, no, it was a huge. I, I wonder if uh, with I think the almost certain, although I can't say with any certainty, change in his galleries, if perhaps his new gallerist might not work to push uh, a result like something on this uh, higher than we would anticipate in like a free market. Um, and it is interesting. It's it's a it's a house guarantee, meaning Christie's has provided the financing on this picture, and they have not, as of now, sold it off. Um, so I wonder if it'll end up uh, end up in Mister Pino's collection. Um, and then the next thing that really fascinates me, because as I was kind of in in university and and sort of just getting into the into the art world as a curator, you know, Matthew Barney was someone that was such a key figure in the nineteen nineties, uh, and you know was kind of uh, a market darling before I was in the market. But even I realized uh, that. But his market has essentially gone away over the past 10 years. I mean, yeah. if you look at it, if you look at his results, all his big prices and the times he was included in, in evening sales was all in the last time was really in the aughts for the most part. Um, but Christie's has included a piece by Matthew Barney from the Cremeister one series uh, in their evening sale at a pretty low estimate of one to one fifty. a pic, a, a similar picture from this edition sold a few years ago in like a, in like a day sale for close to one ninety. Yeah. Right. Oh, one twenty. Oh, yeah, I, I think it sold for one. Maybe it was. I had one from 2012. Maybe you cut a different one, but it was interesting to see that works. You know, I, I haven't remembered a Matthew Barney in an evening sale context in a very yeah. long time. I'm ready for uh, at least sort of the photographic works. I love Matthew. I had a similar thing. Um, I was given one of the Cree Masters by my uncle for my like 14th birthday, and I remember just thinking this was the craziest thing I've ever seen. Um, and that was one of my early introductions into the kind of the contemporary art world. And, you know, this was always, you know, Astrop has one version of this. Um, I don't know if you remember, it was before your time at Phillips, but uh, the Veronica's Revenge. Yeah, that's uh, the one that collection. we had 187 uh, of this edition. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that was back in 2004, but that was one of the best contemporary photographic collections I've seen. And it was one of the things that really got me passionately looking at that contemporary art or contemporary photography um, at the time. But um, yeah, I'm curious to see how it does. That's, that's I, I will say I've been, we've been tracking these in day sales over the past two and a half years or so, and even trying yeah. to get some bids. And we've seen things that we thought we could get real deals on, meaning like mid five figures on things. Yeah. And it seems like there are other people that have been thinking the same thing. My reasoning came more curatorial than markets. I mean, a little bit of both. And that a lot of younger artists that I'm interested in, people like Anna Kigi, Josh Klein, uh, many others that I'm, that I'm forgetting seem to be heavily influenced by Matthew Barney and he's a repeat real precursor to, to artists that right now are very curatorially um, relevant um, so I think Absolutely. that you know anytime you, you want to look at what are you know artists of the day what they're looking back at and kind of give you a key of what's what's important we may have been bidding against each other <laughs> <laughs> not, not probably not the first time and I don't think it'll be the last time <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and then uh, I just uh, before we move on uh, move on to some of the other sales I do want to bring up uh, I've, I've, I've two Friend friends yeah, two friends that have generously given work uh, to Christie's that are being sold uh, for charity uh, Rashid Johnson and Joel Messler a little friend of the pod who's been mm-hmm. was, was one of our first guests um, and that's a market that I don't want to get into right now but is, is clearly in a certain place he's made a Joel at least has made a fantastic work that's very New York Amazing specific work. for a COVID charity mm-hmm. and, and Rashid's uh, given one of his incredibly desirable impossible to get anxious men series um and then 
mean, there's not much to be said, but I, I think uh, this this three to five million dollar guaranteed Damien Hurst from his uh, from his Venice presentation is like an interesting choice to include. Interesting is one way to, to and put if, it. If it wasn't guaranteed, I'd, I'd highlight this as an as an obvious withdrawal. But uh, but they will sell it uh, to whoever. Who is buying it. these? Who's buying these? All of the usual suspects. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know. I yeah. yeah, they sold what like seventy five percent of that show, like out of Venice, right? Yeah, and it is. I'm realizing now it is third party guaranteed. I don't want. I don't want to slag off Damon. That's like way too easy a thing to do. Um, but uh, it just market wise, I mean, it's listen. I'm I'm always one of those people who said uh, I'm probably going to look at early Damien the same way we look at early Warhol. Like sure. this is going to be something farther down the line. Um, it's just tough. I. I I had heard and saw some of the initial works way before it got announced about the treasure show. And I felt the concept was actually very interesting where it was sort of the borderline between, is this an archeological object or is this this? But when you get into Venice and I saw that first space, I mean, it was, it was like Disneyland. It's like theatrical. And I think this is a tough example from that series to try and put up at auction because it's a very specific buyer no i remember in, in advance of the venice presentation the certain gagosian salesman had like coded ipads uh, that they had to check oh, out I remember that. Had to yeah. go and sit with them and i was like oh this is maybe kind of interesting i'm not sure about the price and they made it seem like you probably won't be able to buy it but i want to show you these things uh, really you could have i think you know if you had the money um but it did not live up for me to the hype and i'm not again i i think early damien for me is very very important this oh, particular project didn't hit it for me and i yeah. would personally have not included this in my sale but i'm um, you know who knows who the consigner is and who knows what that else feels there. like a strong arm so yeah, yeah yeah i mean maybe like the rothko is also theirs or something like that um <laughs> in any case um i did want to pop into some of the older stuff which i know so little about but i always find like kind of interesting things and especially the christie's uh 20th century sale as they call it um, and I love this, uh, I believe it's lot two, the Grace uh, Hardikin, um picture, um, which if sold at the estimate would be uh, a record for her. Her record's basically 450 or something like that. And the estimate's four to, 435, four to six. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah and I, I really like this picture. And she's, you know, she's interesting. She was the only woman artist included in the New American Painting Show, that the MoMA show that the CIA sponsored to kind of travel around Europe in the 19, late 1950s. Um, and was like really big on the downtown scene. If you go through the catalog, there's a killer not a comp picture, but a documentary picture of uh, Grace with Helen Frankenthaler and Joan Mitchell. Uh, that's really great. Um, this work is from like 62. It's after she's left Tibor Denagi, who was her gallery, and is it Beatrice Perry's? I forget the name of her DC gallery, but that's who this picture belonged to. Um, and I just think it's interesting, you know, as we've looked in more contemporary art at trying to find space for people that the market kind of forgot about or didn't give as much credence Completely. to because um, they're women or people of colors or somehow are outside of the usual historical narrative. This seems like an example of Christie's trying to maybe make this happen with a name that hasn't had that much auction, especially evening sale auction stuff in the last, last, last little bit of time. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's from that sort of 60s period. So it'll be, I mean, I, I, I find it gorgeous and i think it's it's one of those kind of paintings that as a lot too you expect to see some fireworks behind it because you don't see many of these examples coming up and um if you're adding and building out you know uh, a great sort of female 1960s collection um as a lot of people are these days uh, it's just a it's a perfect key for that so you know it seems mm -hmm. like they're gonna, they're gonna set a reset a market with this is Absolutely. my anticipation um and it, it is gorgeous in person um and similar, I mean, the, the sale has a number of strong females. There's a, for me, at least, a great example, great Lee Krasner, um, from yeah. sort of, mm -hmm. I, I think, her most uh, fertile period, which is just after the, you know, the few years after her husband, Jackson Pollock, dies. I think they're called Nightshades, or I forget what the series is, is, is called. Night Journeys. Um, really great picture. Um, you know, moderate estimate at five to seven. That's right in where kind of her top, top five results are. Um, yeah. really good looking thing. Um, and I think some of the same people are probably that are, that you spoke of they're they're assembling, they're relooking at women artists of that era would probably chase something like this. Completely. Um, and in the same vein, I'm, I am in, in love with this Joan Mitchell it's painting. Like absolutely picture. think it's a, think it's an absolutely like an absolutely stunning, stunning work. Uh, obviously she's someone that with, with the announcement of some, some big museum shows, um, there's been a lot of action on the secondary market, uh, looking for pictures kind of like this. Um, and, uh, yeah, I could, I could stare at this forever. I wish I could own it or, or help someone own it. Um, relatively. It's one of those paintings too. I wish I could be able to like stand in front of, cause you just need to get yeah. that depth of understanding of the, the, the palette. And just cause she works them so heavily, you want to be able to see all of the sort of variations on color. 
I find it's like that precursor to the grand valet, you know, mm-hmm. she was sort of the, that was like her high point, I think in that late stage in 83, 84. And it's got that diptych feel, which I, I really, really like. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I wish you could stand in front of it. Cause I know that you would really like it. The experience is incredible. It was like, uh, it was one of my favorite things I checked out the other day. And I, I mean, I'm not that involved in a market like this. It's outside my specialty, but it, it seems to me that it's better than the than the the Christie's piece that they just sold that had a lot of yellow in it for about 14 million. I, I would imagine if yeah. if I had underbid that and had stopped at 12 hammer or something, I would keep going on this picture mm-hmm. um, for me. Yeah, it's also, I mean, uh, in a that, me- that painting though, I have to say, was a killer painting too because I dealt with that one. So. Okay, okay. <laughs> and and this is something again, you know, a lot, you know a lot more about than I do, and about this market and what what one would be looking for. I'm a dilettante in many things, and especially, <laughs> no, especially no, no. that. <laughs> um, speaking of dilettantes, it just it stuck out to me because it looked very familiar. The Sigmar Polka, a the picture, it's funny, and it, even though it's from the 20th century and in the 60s, it looks like such a contemporary picture. But it stood out to me completely. Be, but it, you know, it stood out to me a because I love it and it's great. But it it only sold 10 years ago uh, for seven and a half million dollars. It looks like to David's Warner. Who then resold it to the to the to the current consigner? Um, so even though it's it's third party guaranteed, not depending on where that guarantee is in the seven to ten million dollar estimate, not that much of a not that much of an advance on that. And if I'm not, I mean, it came up. It was it was in this sale called the it was uh, Count Durkheim's collection, uh, which was probably the best examples of sort of Polka and Rector that had stayed together for a number of years. Um, one of them was uh, another uh, Polka called uh, The Jungle, which then resold again afterwards uh, for around 30. And uh, this picture actually, I think, came up again, if I'm not mistaken. So it was 2011 when it came up. Then it went up went in 2018 to Phillips at a 12 to 18 million estimate. And then I, it was withdrawn, so it doesn't pop up. But I just remember that picture. And I think it had either sold subsequently after that, um, but now it's back on the market again. So, and that's interesting. The uh, a lot of that is left out of the provenance that, <laughs> that Christie's has chosen to put up. I I caught it in. The, they don't in the, have to put it in yeah, if no, it's withdrawn or yeah, no, not right. sold. Yeah, so. that, and that's why that's why withdrawals happen right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, both protect the picture and uh, and to protect the the sales results. Yeah, the sell through rate. Um, anyway, I love it, but I wouldn't buy it at that price now. And then just lastly in the sale. Um, uh, I love I, and stand, uh, something else you need to stand in front of because it really feels like history. This great little double Marilyn's uh, uh, by Andy Warhol from 1962 was incredible in person. Um, yeah, um, that was a it's it's a beautiful work in person. I vividly remember it because it came to London. It was a strange they sold it in London in like the, um, I mean in, in London in 2008 like in October the, like, like the worst I mean the worst moment in the market. Whoever bought this had balls of fucking steel. Yeah. And, it, and it's, it's, I, know, I know who bought it. Okay. Uh, they're doing very well for themselves. Um, yeah. And, and what was interesting, <laughs> uh, I'm surprised they're selling it, frankly, but um, it was, it was a very interesting moment to have balls, as you said, to buy a picture like this in the context of that, you know, the, the, the world crashing around you. And this picture in particular, I just, it was, it always just sort of stood out to me. And I was thinking about it again, kind of your sort of recontextualizing things. You look at like the four colored Maryland's that came up in 2015 selling for 36 after it had been up previously. Um, you know, I, I, I do, I, I think for, for great objects like this from Warhol, even though the market's a little depressed, this is definitely something that, you know, is, uh, is kind of a killer. And um, on, a, on a weird tangent, I was, while I was doing my um, running through everything, I was looking at the Orange Maryland that had come up in 2006, uh, which made $16 million at the time. Uh, I remember we got a call from someone after that had sold saying they had a similar one, which was the Lemon Maryland, and he had bought it. Uh, at the time uh, uh, for uh, $250 <laughs> and then sold it for $28 million oh my God. in May 2007. So what a that nice is, return. That is a flex. Uh, if only they were all like that. Um, anyway, it's, it is a great picture. I think, I think war, even though we, I mean, we won't get into the Warhol market, even though it is in certain elements kind of soft, special pictures like this seem to supersede the general kind of trajectory of what's going mm. on there. Completely. 
on another random one. Uh, I remember when Hugh Grant uh, sold his uh, turquoise uh, Liz with us. Um, he had bought that on a bender with his father. They no were way. in the sales room, wasted, bid on it, didn't realize they had bought it, and he got the invoice for it later on and realized he had bought this thing. <laughs> Turned out to be a good investment, but uh, wow. yeah. Yeah. Hugh Grant. I love these little... Talk about talk about the yeah. casino philosophy. I love it. Wow. Oh, what a hero. <laughs> Um, that wasn't in the catalog note. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it should be. I feel like that adds a certain uh, totally. a certain something to it. Um, let me pull up Sotheby's. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on the Imod stuff just because it's really it's far outside of of uh, my ability to be intelligent. I did really think it was interesting. Again, so I'm trying to think about outside of the names that have already been kind of excavated or given renewed attention. Um, people, you know, like like I spoke about, you know, female artists. I think they have a great little Diego Rivera, which is a, a really strange painting um, by him. I shouldn't see it. And actually, has a really. It's a, actually, you know, the, the good thing about the good thing about the Imod sales and the catalogs is they actually get actual academics to write the catalog notes. So you learn a lot about this picture, which is of a, a famous film actress that she made. Um, and it just feels like two to three million dollars for for kind of a, a, an important Latin modernist. Um, you know, kind of a great picture. Brilliant. I don't have any skin in the game. I, I certainly won't be bidding on it. And then just to, you know, talk about you know one of the great things about auctions and being in New York or London during the previews is being able to go and I was able to spend like, I don't know, eight minutes alone standing in front of this Claude, uh, Claude Monet, like no one else around. I could get like, you know, an inch in front of it and really check out the brush strokes. And it was, you know, again, not a market I will probably ever be involved in, but I'm a, a huge uh, uh, art lover of, of, of his work. And, uh, and there's like a special, you know, special five to eight minutes I got to have this weekend. So if you're in New York, make, it, make a reservation even if you're not going to bid on it. I mean, you were talking about, I think, in one of the previous episodes about, like, uh, you know, Greek helmet. Uh, oh, yeah. uh, I lost that one, but it was and, great. You know, it's it's funny, I think, especially when Christie's used to be what Christie's was, like, uh, you know, every time we had a Stradivarius violin come in, we'd have a professional concert, you know, violinist come in and play just for, for the Christie's staff. And... Um, my wife was working uh, as the business director for um, Asian art department, which incorporated antiquities as well. And you'd see just the most incredible, you know, Egyptian objects to whatever it might be. And nothing was that expensive, but the best was she had this guy come in um, with like a plastic tub and it just had, was filled with dirt. And he was one of those guys that goes out into the fields with a metal detector. And it was this beautiful Roman ceremonial kind of like um, parade helmet. And they dug it out of the dirt there because he just cut the dirt out and then just put it in. It was the most amazing thing. So cool. it, like, wow. Like, Three million or four million dollars, but yeah, yeah. Sometimes anyway. it's, it's the non-contemporary auction stuff that when I worked at my little auction house, the specialists too, the people you that you work with, they're like are such, completely such knowledge, you know, have this knowledge base so so divergent that's fun to talk and about. You had the best ones at Phillips for photography for Edition multiples. Yeah. I mean, talking to Carrie Leibowitz, like I mean, it was the most, you know, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, is, it was his desk as messy as it was when it was at Christie's. Uh, yeah, I mean, at least, at least when I was there last, and obviously, Carrie, also a great artist, Candy, Candy Ass, he goes candy by. Ass. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, yeah and he was, you know, right it's, it's just a yeah, and then I didn't really understand additions and multiples, and like now I'm a I'm a total sucker for it. I never got it. I thought, that, oh, it's a poster, but he was, uh, you know, he's a special special guy. All right, zipping across. I, uh, all, yeah. Sorry, just quickly on that note, one of my favorite things to do is I, every time I go to LA, but I went to Gemini Gel Studios. Um, and I spent, you know, hours in there and you get to talk to these people and like, they're doing like the Julie Murray two pieces right now. And I was like, Oh, it's a print. You're like, somebody had to hand buff these plates to do one small line, which is one tiny part of a giant, you know, it takes hours and hours and days and days and days just to do a single print, uh, sometimes more than it takes to do, you know. Uh, a painting for half these people. So, and, and, yeah. some art, and some artists get really into the process and really enjoy it. Um, and they're, Ugh, and yeah. by the way, someone like Julie Merritt, those are quarter million dollar prints we're talking about oh, totally. that are very hard yeah. to get access to right now. Um, same with like Richard Sarah, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, walking walking over to York Avenue to our friends at Sotheby's. Do, 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 do. Uh, a couple things stood out that stood out, but interesting. I mean, this is this is just the, all the all the sales have them, but the Salmon Tour that obviously had a crazy result in Asia just a couple of weeks ago, and then uh, I think in London just before the end of the year um, had a big solo show at the Whitney Museum. I think that came down. 
Yeah, I mean, but they're this now was in the Whitney show. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're now they're now all flooding the market. <laughs> I mean, the, the the labels in that Whitney show of who owned them made me very. Now. Very concerned about the future stability of the market, <laughs> um, shall we say? And I think we're going to see. Can we you know, call them out or now? N- I'm not going to. Okay, People right. can go online and find them. I yeah. do business with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, just I I worry when I see too much of a relatively young artist that had some result because everyone that bought you know spent twenty grand is like oh there's selling for you know half a million bucks I'll mm-hmm. pop it in there and eventually the people that are bidding these crazy prices realize you know what if I don't get this one there'll be another one so maybe I don't need to make this next bid mm-hmm. um, so that's kind of a shame I do like them when you saw them all in the houses they kind of all look same. And uh, I don't know, I, I lost, uh, some of the magic got lost for me personally, but maybe I'm being overly uh, mm-hmm. cynical about the whole thing. But something I'm not cynical about is this, uh, is this Robert Cole Scott, oh uh, George Washington crossing the Delaware. Obviously, um, this is Cole Scott's take on uh, Lazou's uh, widely known painting from like the mid-19th century of uh, the present crossing Delaware, but remade uh, to, to reflect African-American history. This picture is bananas good. Oh. So it's awesome. On a Robert Colescott note, I um, I remember in 2006 I was a junior specialist and I was cataloging a very large painting called Pygmalion um, for I think it was like the first open sale or the day sale, and I saw on the back an address and it said Tucson, Arizona, where I grew up, and I was like, I've got to look this guy up. I can't believe there's an artist that's there. I had no idea about. And I ended up kind of reaching out and then he actually came out to New York shortly thereafter. And we had this, uh, he, he was, uh, you know, it was maybe two years before he died. And we had this uh, drawing called Jemima's Pancakes. And I encourage you to look it up. It's like this graphic vignette of oh. uh, Colonel Sanders and Aunt Jemima in like full calculation and fellatio. <laughs> oh and I'm sitting here with this older man who I just revere and chatting with him about it. And it's like something he did in 1968. And I, the idea of that in 68 is just mind blowing to begin with, but sort of talking to him through and, and talking about his practice, talking about our, you know, shared hometown was just like one of those sort of special moments in the art world. And I'm just so happy to start kind of see him you know, it's a huge jump. I mean, the, the record price for him is like $900,000, but jumping from that to 9 million, I, I think it's you know, highly deserved. Um, and um, it, it's, it's someone who's really just pushed boundaries throughout, you know, a, a very difficult time in American history. So, yeah, I mean, it's guaranteed and it is a huge jump, but I think if the house does a job of getting this picture in front of the right people, I see no reason why it, it can't go above that low oh, estimate. totally. You know, a hammer of 10, 10, 10 and a half seems really reasonable to me. Um, it's just such an iconic picture of someone that was, you know, was amazing, but even during his lifetime really wasn't acknowledged in the way they should have either curatorially or by the market. Can I can I interject two pictures you didn't add on to? Yeah, yeah please. That's the idea. I, I know you probably have like time limits here. But, no, no, no. I just uh, I was going to say it's interesting seeing the two Basquiat's coming up at the same time. Obviously, you've got uh, the versus Medici, which I've always loved. Um, I saw it actually in a client's home in Belgium probably 15 years ago, um, and then I saw it again at the Plaza Fortuny in in, in, in 2017 and during. Um, during Venice. And it was just, you know, I I think that is an absolutely killer painting. It's sort of sadly being sort of overshadowed by uh, the Giamatti painting, but I think you're going to see if that does go crazy, this hopefully will see kind of a similar sort of push up. Whereas I think if it was the other way around where Sotheby's was coming first, I think you'd have a little bit of a a disconnect kind of like when Lahara came up, Mm -hmm. Also an awesome painting the day before uh, the the head came up that uh, Maya Zawa bought. So, right. Um, sorry. And the other one I was going to say was the because I don't think we had on our list. Well, but I just want to say also standing in front of this, it's a different experience and it real. Oh. I mean, there's so much detail. Um, the you know the red picture really it's like kind of it's a great picture and I, I know it'll do better, but it's kind of a little bit one note for me. This like you could spend a lot of time decoding all these little details. Oh, exactly. That's what this, these are the ones where you've got all that little iconography mm-hmm. and there's just such depth to the painting. And he's sort of like painted it, painted over it, painted it, painted over it. And then finally ended with that, uh, that imagery. It's uh, stunning in person. So, um, but, but also that the Twombly, I think was, was one I wanted to mention. Um, which is a very interesting one for the market because it's, it's, these are one of the Perlman pictures that's coming up again. Um, 
estimate of 35 to 45 million. It is, you know, you looked at the last, you know, the two highest prices for Twombly at auction were set at 70.5 and 69.6. Plus off the backs of those, there were a number of different private transactions that happened around those numbers. So it'll be very curious, you know, I, I would expect this, this work to have legs. It's a good estimate. It's a large scale work. It's a little bit more flat, I would say. It's like yeah. really concentrated in the middle, but when you stand in front of it on the sides, or they saw it in the house, uh, it's a you know, it's 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 not as complex as some of the others. But um, if it sells for thirty five million, there's going to be a lot of people not so happy. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I understand that. <laughs> um, I was also uh, interested yeah. in this Joan Mitchell because I think this would be like a great companion piece if you if if, if you get the, the the more significant picture uh, at Christie's you really tell an incredible story of her trajectory with these two pictures next wow. to each other. That's I mean, I curated an exhibition uh, mm-hmm. two years ago at the gallery, focusing. It was sort of uh, we were looking a lot at like the reverse of the New American Painters, and it was this kind of like exodus of people coming to Paris and Paris is a hub um, during the fifties and sixties. So, you know, you have Mitchell, Riappel, Sam Francis, um, Zawuki coming in. And it was sort of just this like epicenter at the time. I had this work on, on loan to our show. It's stunning in person. Um, it's coming from an amazing uh, uh, private collection in Mexico. And I actually, Made an offer to her uh, above uh, in the estimate. Uh, I was surprised she didn't take it then, but um, uh, you know she's doing well, and she has uh, a killer eye for for pictures and buying them before they they go up. I think she bought it in two thousand seven for an oh, wow. one million and ninety three thousand dollars. So right. yeah, yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's it's a really special picture. And I did want to just uh, I thought it's interesting just because his market has been so so unsettled. This uh, this uh, single portrait. Um, self-portrait, I guess, uh, that's coming up an estimate of one eight to two five. Obviously, there's been a lot of uh, fallout in that market after Indigo Philbrick uh, took the money and yeah. ran uh, before he got caught. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, this would have traded for more you know, before that. Um, for instance, the last kind of somewhat similarly scaled small portrait from the same series uh, traded for four five, uh, just like three years ago in, in May of eighteen. Um, yeah. this, this will not get close to that. And there's a lot of people that have been kind of left holding the bag. Obviously those people that literally got robbed, but people that were invested in this market, <laughs> that's kind of, kind of stalled out. Yeah, but I do, I do, crime. but nonetheless, out, outside crime. of all that gossip, just as like on an art historical tip, I love this picture. And I wonder if people will see if there's opportunity there at this low estimate and actually end up doing Completely. relatively okay. Um, I mean, I think that this is probably one of the best examples I've seen. I mean, it's kind of a portrait of Nate, but um, it. Uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, but like what I found was interesting. I remember Christie's in 2008 guaranteed three different paintings from Stingle. We put them up in the middle of the, you know, the fallout and they BI'd. We got stuck with them and we sold them for cheap afterwards. And one of them was one of these self-portraits and it was one, you know, it was something that I said, like, we shouldn't sell this for this much money. And we did. And I think there will be, again, kind of like um, uh, what I was saying about Damien, I do think Stingo in terms of his practice, his early work will be seen in that very Warholian lens. Um, I just think it needs to get rid of the sort of indigo stink um, yeah. for a couple of years. So I'm now looking at it. I wish, wish, wish we hadn't brought it up because now I kind of want to get someone involved. But. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, yeah. not that many people listen. It'll be okay. I'm not sure <laughs> the kind of people with the, with the, the bank, three or four people won't yeah, notice with so. the bank accounts that listen. I think the, the Venn diagram is relatively thin there. Um, uh, Here's to hoping at least. Yeah, there's there's a number of really nice uh, Dana Schutz pictures coming up this week. I really like this one at Sotheby's uh, at a pretty hefty one five to two estimate um, below her record, but it's a relatively small scale picture. Um, you know, with her move to to Zwarner, that's going to be and the solo uh, booth, the solo at, booth at, at Freeze. Uh, there's only about yeah. four pictures. The competition was not insignificant, also not insurmountable, but not insignificant. So I think that this will do well. Um, and there's a there's one of the Christie's Day sale as well. And then also on the younger end of things, um, I was just interested in this incredibly hefty estimate on this Harold Ankar picture. It's one of his earlier 
earlier pieces, and he hasn't had that many big results recently. His market kind of got a little bit more quiet. This is very similar to a picture that sold for about half a million dollars in, um, in 2020, 2019. Um, but at 600 to 800, there's clearly something going on there that, that, if it sells at the low estimate, it's a record price. Correct. And the yeah. record price was for a triptych. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I think, yeah, there's some, some legs there to, to Harold. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not sure about long term. I think definitely, at least in the coming couple of weeks, I think this will do okay. But I, w- I would not personally, as a former auction house, although I worked at an auction house that would often overestimate works in order to win the business, this feels like the wrong estimate. And I think it'll actually could potentially decrease its ultimate price because I think people will be scared mm. off from throwing in the, 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 the lower bids. Yeah. Um, and that's all I have. Did we miss anything that was really key? Anything you noticed, Nate, in your, your journalist look at the sales? You got the, the highlights, really. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, there's no lot screaming out to me that I want to discuss. I mean, I, I will say overall, uh, there's the, house, the houses both definitely are very happy to be selling off any guarantees they have, but there's a lot of competition to be the person to, to buy that guarantee on certain pictures from them, I noticed, uh, yep. much to my chagrin. There are definitely a lot of guarantees out there. And, um, you know, I think they've put together for, I know it's been very competitive. I know it's been very difficult to get pictures in, but, you know, going from the the Marion collection, which we didn't discuss to the Mondrian coming up. I mean, there's some really significant pictures that are going to be up for sale this season. And I think sometimes less is more. Um, and at least they've got very good examples by all these artists. Um, I, curious to see on the younger side how they all play out but um but i think they've done a very good job and kind of hats off to and hopefully this will be the last main season where we're doing it all online and hopefully by by the next one you and i'll be able to go get a drink either before or after the auctions and and do this kind of discussion in person because i miss seeing you and i miss seeing other people at the auction weeks are always very exciting for me much like uh much like fair weeks and uh, it's a little bit different when we're all so disparate but Mm -hmm. nonetheless hopefully we'll get you to come back on the next time there's a big season sale maybe in november or something to to do the same sort of things this was great really appreciate really appreciate your your knowledge base incredible knowledge base it's it's like art camp it's uh, it's really fun (laughs) you know and i like it's sort of yeah you know i miss we um, as you said like we're eating crab all over the world together and it's sort of this is a kind of a a good uh, substitute. I mean, mm-hmm. Zoom, but you know, yeah. hopefully we'll be hanging out in person again soon. I think so. well, at the very least we'll be at Joe's in December. Well, not at, at the yes, very least, hopefully we'll. I don't think we, I don't think we've ever done crab in Switzerland. Thank goodness, but we'll find some <laughs> sort of substitute. Hopefully in September. I remain cautiously. There we go. <laughs> cautiously optimistic. That's that, the optimism uh, we yeah, need. Cautiously optimistic that we'll be together in September at the latest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, friend. Um, thanks. Thanks the- for coming on. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much. And I want to do a quick plug. There was I went to the most amazing show. It hasn't opened yet, but the Du Buffet exhibition at the Barbican Center. Uh, the curator also did the um, Basquiat Boom for Real, for Real Eleanor. And um, we had sort of a sneak preview of it. And people who know Du Buffet and kind of think about him as this sort of brown you know, uh, day sale kind of paintings or just think about Paris Circus, uh, it's really well, tightly edited, room to room, almost like in the fascicules that, that uh, it's like the catalog raisonné. It's just a really great digestible exhibition and definitely anyone who's in London, go by. All right. And hopefully they'll open up to the rest of us. All right. Thanks so Let's much, Locke Kressler. You're the man. We love you. We Thank you, Locke. Talk to you soon, buddy. Thanks, guys. Bye.